The following episode of Ottoman History Podcast is part of an ongoing series on the history of gender in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series, as well as many other series available for streaming or download through iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I am Emra Safa Gürkan. I'm Kahraman Shakul. And this is Louis Fishman. Uh, today, our guest is Dr. Gail Leiser, a retired civil servant whose academic interest is on medieval Islamic history. Dr. Leiser holds a PhD degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and we will be today talking with him on social and economic aspects of prostitution in the Eastern Mediterranean from the time of Constantine the Great to Mehmed II in such a large uh, time frame where we will discuss with, with this issue with Dr. Leiser. Uh, Dr. Leiser, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a very controversial subject. So, uh, how, how did you get interested in this in this subject? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, about 20 years ago, when I was doing research on other subjects in medieval Islamic social history, I began to come across uh, odd references to prostitution in various sources, and on a whim, I began to collect these references. And after many years, suddenly I found myself with about 80 pages of notes on prostitution in the medieval Islamic world. So I decided to uh, expand upon them and uh, shape them into monograph. Uh, It became uh, quite obvious to me that much of what was said about prostitution in this period was essentially conventional wisdom, such assertions that Prostitution was the world's oldest profession, or it was the worst form of exploitation of women in the Middle Ages. These assertions are based entirely on no research whatsoever. And it turns out that the institution of prostitution is somewhat more sophisticated and nuanced. So my research is completely unsystematic in the sense that I gleaned my references from a a wide range of sources in many genres. Uh, references to prostitution could appear almost anywhere in poetry, in chronicles, in uh, medical texts, in geographical works, and it's beyond the lifetime of one or two people to go through every possible source and see what they might say, if anything, on this subject. So it's, uh, my research is, a, is a, the result of this unsystematic approach to the sources. Nevertheless, I found, I think, many fascinating uh, uh, references to the to the subject, which I think are, are are significant for social history, and above all, how men and women, how people really behaved during this period. I should add that no book has been written on the history of prostitution in the Middle Ages in any part of the Middle East, and that was an additional stimulus to uh, doing this research. There has been one work published on prostitution in the Eastern Mediterranean world in late antiquity, that is the early Byzantine period, and this was a dissertation by Stavrula Leontisi at the University of Vienna, and uh, I made great use of her work in the first chapter. Perhaps I should first define the subject. I suppose we all know what prostitution is, but I approach it simply as the sale by women of their sexual favors to men for money, and this is, these sales must be indiscriminate and frequent. In Roman law, for example, if a woman fell on hard times and was forced to sell her favors once or twice, 
this would not be sufficient to consider her, for example, as a, as a prostitute. So that's my working definition. For the early Christian period, the sources are primarily Roman law, above all, uh, the novella of, the, uh, of Justinian, the lives of the saints, which are surprisingly full of stories of uh, prostitutes who then gave up that profession to become uh, examples of virtuous women. Uh, and they served as uh, their, their accounts of their lives served as edifying stories for the believers. And there are also some references in the history, historical works and chronicles. Uh, most noteworthy is that of uh, Procopius, who gives us his scabrous stories of Theodora and uh, you know, the wife of Justinian, and also of Antonina, the wife of the commander-in-chief of the Byzantine military. And both of these women uh, worked their way up the ranks, so to speak, from working in the circus, which was a, you know, a euphemism for working as, uh, as prostitutes. So the, there are some rich sources uh, on prostitution in the late uh, early Christian period, late, late antiquity. And they show, among other things, that um, prostitution was widespread. It was found in all the major ports around the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Alexandria, Tyre, uh, Tripoli, Antioch, and so forth. These women usually worked where men gathered, above all, large groups of men. This would be in the ports, in the, in the marketplaces, inns, taverns, the circus, and they say wherever large crowds of men were to be found. This also included fairs, uh, places of pilgrimage, uh, and holidays. Uh, one of the most uh, renowned stories of a prostitute concerns Mary of Egypt, uh, who worked in Alexandria. And she decided to follow a group of Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem. And so, so she sold her favors uh, to pay for her passage to Palestine and then set up shop in front of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, taking care of the needs of pilgrims. And this is a pattern that was to repeat itself also in Muslim times by women who were presumably uh, Muslim prostitutes who carried out the same trade in say, Mecca. The church's position on prostitution, I should say, was ambivalent. The church hated the, hated the sin but loved the sinner. Uh, and it believed that it was a necessary ill. Uh, and this goes back to St. Augustine, who held that, again, it was a necessary evil, but it was important for holding the family, that is to say, society together, and for protecting respectable women. Uh, this was a way of keeping, above all, gangs of young men from assaulting respectable women. They could turn their interests uh, elsewhere, and thus it was a way, prostitution was rationalized, I might say, as a way of protecting women. Isn't it very ironic that the prostitution is actually uh, deemed by Augustine to uh, to be a cornerstone, to be the protector of the family values, while in fact the modern concept of prostitution is exactly vice versa to that and to that understanding. Way, the position of Jalaluddin Rumi was exactly the same thing. with Augustine. With Augustine, wow, quite a from Tunis from Hippo to Konya is yes. quite a connection same, to make. That the same 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 position. The coming of, of Islam 
uh, above all to places like Egypt and Syria, did not initially begin make any particular change as far as I could tell in the practice of prostitution. We have to keep in mind that the majority of the population in Egypt and Syria remained Christian for about 400 years. So we, it's logical to assume that for the most part the trade continued in primarily in Christian hands, and the same pattern of prostitution continued into the, the Muslim period. The Muslim rulers were only concerned with paying taxes, and they weren't, didn't really care how the Christians earned their money. So it would only have been later, say 400 years or so, that the majority of the participants in the trade were non-Christian, were above all Muslims. But the pattern of the trade remained more or less the same. Let me say that, um, uh, say a few words here about the status of prostitution in Arabia before the coming of Muhammad. My work concentrates primarily on, I say the Eastern Mediterranean, but I did include Arabia. So Arabia, Egypt, Syria, and Anatolia. In Arabia, prostitution was practiced again in the usual places. Uh, ports, uh, places of pilgrimage, as you know, Mecca was a place of pilgrimage before the coming of Islam. Uh, it was practiced at uh, important fairs, such as that as Uqad, uh, the town of Ta'if, which is not far from Mecca, uh, was famous for having a section that was set aside for uh, bordellos, and the women uh, hung blue banners from their so it had a red light district yeah, in a way. Kind of, kind of Taifa had that yes, red light yes, district yes, yeah. in print. They, they hoisted blue banners to indicate their their, their place of business. Blue district, maybe then. A blue, blue the blue district, district instead, exactly, instead of the, the the red light district. Trying to examine prostitution at that time is a little bit complicated by what appear to be very fluid arrangements for cohabitation. That is to say, there were there appear to be some remnants of the practice of polyandry, that's where a woman would have more than one husband. There was a tradition of sexual hospitality, whereby a visitor would be offered a man's wife or daughter to, uh, for comfort for an evening. Uh, there's some evidence that if a man wished his child, presumably a son, to have certain attributes that he lacked, such as maybe strength or uh, great intellectual ability, he might ask that man to impregnate his wife so that he would then pass on these attributes to, to a child. So there's a DNA manipulation there. DNA, in a way sir, yes, well, you can look at it that way. Sure. Literum, without knowing. <laughs> and of course, uh, one could own slave girls. You know, a group of men might purchase the same girl. Or, uh, may, they may just have children with her who would be accepted as, as legitimate. The practice of temporary marriage was uh, common uh, well before the time of Muhammad. That is, that is uh, the practice of mut'a. And so when you add prostitution to this, how, how, what, what, how would it stand out? Or would it just simply be another alternative to cohabitation? It seems that from this time, really throughout the Middle Ages, I, I should add here that, that the people generally looked upon prostitution indifferently. I mean, it was just a normal profession for a woman. Uh, and this was true also under Christian rule, under, under the Byzantines, uh, where 
in late antiquity under early Byzantine rule, a woman who wanted to be independent or who had to be independent because she had no family support and wanted to work beyond the family, she only really had two choices. She could work in the circus or she could be a prostitute. And usually They're being an actress thing. in the circus and a prostitute were synonymous. The circus was really a place of, in, a, in the broad sense of, of entertainment, rather like burlesque in America, whether you had singers and dancers and comedians. And, and so this was where a woman could work if she could not uh, otherwise support herself or, or, or she didn't have a family to, to give her support. And this was generally also true in Arabia before the coming of Islam and after Islam. Although we know that women before and after Muhammad in, the Muslim, uh, say in Arabia could have their own businesses so that they, they were not necessarily confined to being uh, working. They, well, they didn't have circuses. The, the counterpart for circuses was the singing girl in the tavern. But apart from that and, and being uh, strictly a prostitute, a woman could have her own business uh, in Arabia. So there were, if she decided to become a prostitute, it may have been somewhat more willful. But even in pre-Islamic Arabia, having resorted to prostitution instead of some other jobs that are available to women, mm-hmm. were, they, were they the same thing? Because you said that it's just one profession, but still a morally, morally inferior, despised, or is it not? It, I mean, if, if you have other... Because yes, why yes. can't read what you say if, if there are no other options for a woman, mm-hmm. prostitution maybe, or the actress, then this could be read like, okay, this was just profession, but a woman to have a profession was already moral despised because the only two professions that were open to women were prostitution and actress. But, but in Arabia, they, they were, other professions were open to them. You know, Khadija, for example, she was a businesswoman. She conducted trade from between, supposedly between Arabia and Syria. So... There was an alternative to working as a singing girl or being strictly working as a as a prostitute. So it's in a choice that, that was, yeah, that you had that, more. You had women there had had more, somewhat more choice. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it um, so it seems. The question then, uh, I suppose, that that begs itself is: so along comes Islam, and then what happens? How does the situation change? Here, it's important to note that the Quran only has one thing to say about prostitution, and that is you men, and then that's the, the verb is masculine plural, should not prostitute your slave girls. So that's it? That's it. There's no other... There's, that's, that's it. It doesn't say that prostitution is forbidden. It says slave girls should not be prostituted. The term here is bira for prostitution, and bariya is the is prostitute. Now, there are other references in the Quran to fahisha, fuhush, which usually means reprehensible act. And you, well, not usually, but sometimes a sexual infraction is implied, but not always. You know, there could be lots of reprehensible acts that have nothing to do with sex. And these, this term usually appears in the discussion of, we might call family relationships and modesty of women. Reprehensible acts could cover a wide variety of things. In the early development of Islamic law, prostitution, to the extent that it's mentioned at all, is discussed under commercial transactions, not under family law. So the implication is that is a very different phenomenon from fuhush, from fahisha. 
So what my interpretation is that what the Quran is simply saying that don't you should not exploit slave girls, you should not pimp them for money. The girls, the women, should be allowed to keep their wages. So in this sense, I mean, Islam certainly would have improved the status of women who are practicing this trade. From that time, throughout the period that I investigated, this was essentially the case. There was, that is to say, prostitution was not illegal according to Islamic law. And this appears in both an examination of the tafsir, Quranic exegesis, and in hadith, where the subject, surprisingly, is almost not mentioned at all. Before we go into you know, tafsir and hadith, from a legal standpoint, the fact that there is a specific law uh, that talks about prostitution and only making just an exceptional case for slave girls, but no general law shouldn't suggest that actually Quran saw is kind of legitimate because it bothers to tell you not to prostitute your own slave girl, but it doesn't bother to tell you that the prostitution is forbidden. So mm -hmm. This explicit uh, silence could mm -hmm. be taken for a mm -hmm. proof that it actually mm -hmm. is not, it not, it not only omitted mm -hmm. to deal with the issue, it chose not to deal because it has never challenged you. Well, that's, that's a classic <laughs> position of Islamic law. Well, Al-Jahiz famously said, well, if it's not forbidden in the Quran, it's, le it's legal, it's acceptable. And it's not, it's not an issue that is only, it's been dealt with in a more particular yes. context, so it could yes. have been, so, okay. Now, that's not to say that people accepted it as moral. We have to make a distinction between, between what, moral what and is legal. immoral and what is illegal. These are two very different things. So you are saying that it's a necessary evil, and it's acceptable as such mm -hmm. in Islamic law. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. Also, also our audience, and a lot of people make that mistake, so our, our audience also must be aware of it, that we, even though we deal with religious law, it deals with every aspect of life, because in the absence of a secular law, a state-codified law, the re religious law does not only deal with uh, the spiritual or celestial aspects of life. It deals with marriages, divorce, it deals with commercial transactions, and there's a, there's a, there's a, huge body of text, uh, both contemporaneously and now modern studies that rely on texts and studies or researchers such as you uh, who rely on these texts. So um, we should make sure we should distinct, distinguish this uh, religious aspect of religious law and other aspects, mm -hmm. practical aspects of religious law. So that's why it shouldn't be a wonder why religious law actually deal with right. uh, inferior yeah. and moral yeah. decrepit issues yeah. such as prostitution. And, and, and again, the, the position of Islamic law and the position of church canon law on prostitution is almost identical. So the, the idea that prostitution was immoral starts uh, relatively early, but it doesn't become, a, I would say, develop into a major issue until several centuries later for a reason. Say, oh, that's, a, that's another subject, but, but uh, the evidence shows that, that this hardening of a moral position is gradual over several centuries. And the fluidity of, of arrangements for cohabitation remained for some time. Now, the, for example, you, if you want to focus on the institution of muta, temporary marriage, the Quran accepts this. It was only the Caliph Omar on it, who, on his own authority, forbade it. The Shiites, as you know, because they reject the first the Orthodox Caliphs as, as illegitimate, of course, do not accept what Omar said. And so for, for the Shiites... Mutah no temporary is even today is completely legitimate. 
and they can cite hadiths where Muhammad says, we have this institution of, of muta, of temporary marriage. He says it to the troops, so use it, he says. And where there are examples of several caliphs or their, of the Umayyad caliphs, or their sons who in fact practiced this, this uh, form of marriage. There seems to have been, at least early on, relatively little stigma attached to visiting a prostitute or to being the son of a prostitute. And the most notorious case is that of Ziad ibn Abihi, the half-brother of the Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah, uh, who, uh, in a, um, interest, an interesting case, Muawiyah, uh, you know, when there was a question over the, the legitimacy or the, of the paternity of Ziad, uh, then you know they bring in a, a physiognomist who helps determine that indeed the father, you both have the same father, and so Muawiyah accepts him as his as his uh, half brother. Uh, and there were some other cases. So could uh, they tell that? Yes. that they would. As a, he would just by uh, comparative methods, he would determine that they had the same the same yeah. father. But again, muta, as you know, is an arrangement whereby a man could pay a woman to. For a certain period, and and they would uh, cohabit, and then at the end of the agreed period, he would compensate her for her time. If there were any children that produced, they would be considered to be legitimate. We know that, I say, among the Shiites, this practice continued up apparently even even today. Uh, in the medieval period, uh, pilgrims who would go to Shiite shrines would find there women who would with whom they could rearrange muta for the period of their pilgrimage. So they would come to so Meshed or Gum or Karbala, and, and they would say, well, I would like some company for a couple of weeks, and so they would have could arrange to have a muta marriage for You mentioned yeah. troops, uh, that the Prophet Muhammad has at the moment mentioned troops that you can use muta, mm -hmm. so the soldiers also mm -hmm. resorted to that. Yes. So it's again a necessary evil, yeah. evil that would prevent soldiers from attacking the local population yeah. and yeah. such. So. Keep, 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 you want to keep the local women safe, separate the, men, the army and the garrison. Later on in the Mamluk period, they had their own Bordellos, special bordellos for the Mamluks in, in Egypt were established uh, so that the troops could uh, resort there rather than going out into the street and assaulting, assaulting women. So from the very beginning then, in Islamic law, based, I say, based on the Quran, Tafsir, Hadith, there was really nothing that makes prostitution illegal. But there, there, but there is the notion, the seeds of the notion of it being an immoral practice start there, but then harden over the centuries. Now, there were other professions, of course, that were also regarded as immoral or the despised, such as being a butcher or a tanner. Uh, these are usually professions of men. So we are talking about a typology of prostitution. So there were different types of prostitutes. It's revealed in sources. That's a good, that's a good question. I, I, I wish I could elaborate on that mm -hmm. more than I can, but... There seems to have been various classes of prostitutes who charge different rates for their services. Uh, you might say some women who worked in the street, others who were the, the equivalent of high-class high call girls. They were taxed. Their tax was what they charged 
well, they paid, had to pay a daily tax, which was the equivalent of what they charged for one visit, depending on what you know their level of, of, of the service that they gave. Uh, and uh, in Egypt, in in particular, for which the sources on prostitution are are by far the richest, we know that prostitution became a state enterprise. There was simply too much money to be gained by the ruling authorities, which again is further evidence of his acceptance as a legitimate profession. There is an enormous amount of hypocrisy here, I must say, in the sources. One of the things, it was, it, was, it was almost a ritual practice. Each time there was a new caliph, say with the Fatimids, and later a new sultan came to power, whether it was Ayyubid or uh, Mamluk, the first thing he did was al-amr bil-ma'ruf and nahyan al-munkar. He would order people to do good, and he would forbid evil. And this always resulted in closing the taverns, stopping people from using hashish, uh, and closing bordellos. This was to show that the, the new ruler was exhibiting moral rectitude, and this he used to help legitimize the fact that he may have seized power in those bloody fashion, but he was a moral person, and she, she proved this by closing the taverns and the bordellos. And also, it should be a way to reassert his authority. An unproven new ruler is showing, demonstrating his power, that exactly. he's worthy of exactly. the show of force. Right. Uh, in his, a way. his predecessor did a terrible job. He allowed all these yeah. vices to take place, but now there is a new regime on hand, and a new world is upon us. So I'm going to start by closing all these dens of iniquity. I mean, Modern politicians today do the same thing. The American Republican Party was notorious for its actions against. Well, that, was, uh, that was by far the most interesting <laughs> comparison that podcast has ever. Yeah, well, no, I, it's not. It's not difficult. Abbott rulers and the American George Republican Bush Party. Yeah, or, yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh you. you uh, but uh, anyway, many of these uh, we I'm digress here. But many of these uh, sultans, especially the Mamluks had to do al-Amr bil-Ma'ruf a number of times because clearly their first attempt to close these places was a failure. And the, the main reasons are two, and these are the two reasons why prostitution has always thrived. One, there is continuous demand. And second, too many people are profiting from it. Now, this is something to always keep in mind. It's not just the payment for the sexual act, but these women were part of the economic fabric of the society in which they work. So who, who benefits from their job? The, the landlords who rent out rooms or the equivalents of hotels for these women to practice. Clothiers who make them special clothing or also uh, shoemakers who made them special clothing. And these women were distinguished above all by what they wore. They were easy to distinguish in the marketplace. So they had special clothing, uh, perfumers, jewelry makers. Uh, in Cairo, in, uh, in the Mamluk period, we have a wonderful description by al-Makrizi describing how these women congregated. They worked in, at the, in the candle maker's market. Now, oh, because the candle so at is night, so essential to... At night, yes. Yeah, so at, at, you know, most shops would close at night because it would, it would get dark. But here's the candle maker's market, which would have been lit up. And so if you're looking for entertainment, it's relatively easy to find. 
and then the girls would find their customers at the candle. It was a symbiotic relationship between the candle makers and the girls who worked there. Then the, the girls would take uh, use, of course, candles to take the, their their customers to the, the, their place of business. What's also interesting is that this candle market, candle makers market, was right next to, if not beneath, because it was a, 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 the, beneath the Al-Akmar Mosque in Cairo, because the mosque was on the second store, second story, and there were shops below. And so the implication from Makrizi is that the, the girls are right there working in front of, of the mosque and a place where they could easily be found because of, uh, they were at the, the candle maker's market. And so you can imagine that on special holidays. And then you go to preach and then yeah. you frequent these you, you, morally you know, inferior places, places to be. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is a fact. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's interesting that the coming of Islam also increased the business opportunities of prostitutes in a number of ways. First of all, of course, in Arabia, it, there were a large number of pilgrims who would come to the holy places, to Mecca, and Mecca was notorious in the Middle Ages as a place of vice. Uh, after one completed the, the, the pilgrimage uh, and took off his ihram and Return to sort of normal life you know, and looking for some female comfort, uh, it was available. So there was a, an increase in prostitution in the ports along uh, Arabia that, that uh, people used to go to Mecca. Also at the staging posts, these menzil, menazil, that, that the, the pilgrimages, pilgrim caravans followed from, whether from Cairo or from Damascus or from Baghdad, the girls worked in the, in the caravanserais, in the khans. And, and according to Al Afghani and his uh, uh, Kitab al Afghani, there is an example, for example, of a, a very famous uh, courtesan who worked in one of these khans. Uh, and it was a visit to her was considered to be part of the pilgrimage tradition. That uh, she was so famous that uh, all the Caravans from so the last had stopped there. She was she was the last, perhaps <laughs> the last the last last temptation before you go you went before, before, you, before you went there. Uh, it should also be said that um, I mean it's not just Mecca. It's also many of the tombs of famous saints became magnets for prostitutes. The the most one about which we have the most information is that of uh, uh, Ahmed al Bedoui and Tanta in Egypt and. The, his shrine was to some degree supported by prostitution because there was essentially a kind of guild of prostitutes who worked there, who looked after the, the comforts of pilgrims, and they pay, paid a portion of their earnings to the maintenance of his shrine. So uh, this, again, is, I think is further evidence of the legitimacy of the trade. We also should keep in mind that Muslim holidays were also good opportunities in which these women could do business. This was also true of Christians. Uh, we know that uh, in Egypt during Epiphany, uh, during the exaltation of the cross, there'd be large crowds of people who would come out and parade up and down the Nile. Uh, and this was a time, it was a carnival-like atmosphere, and this is the time when girls did good business. The same is true during Ramadan. I mean, after all, you're not supposed to eat and drink, have sexual relations during daytime. So, for, at least for some men, you know, 
this, this deprivation of a libido may have been uh, assuaged to some degree after, after the sun went down. So, and so uh, at, at night during Ramadan, the girls did could do. And it was considered to somehow. Uh, again, this was a, again carnival-like atmosphere. You know, this was kind of people's inhibitions are kind of uh, loose at that period or relaxed. Same same was also true later during the birthday of Muhammad which became an important holiday really in the Mamluk period. Again, the same, same thing would happen, that, that uh, this was a time that, that large crowds get together and, and the girls could do, could do good business. The more you look at, at the, the sources and the way people were, were really behaving, it becomes pretty clear that uh, it was always a legitimate um, business operation. I should say that under the Mamluks, we know it, it became a major state enterprise in the sense that the state gained so much taxation from it that um, it was very well organized whereby the police would would register uh, the women who decided to be prostitutes, collect taxes from them, uh, protect them. Uh, El Makrizi claims that even um, married women, we would say respectable married women who wanted to do this job part-time did so out of their homes, uh, and then they simply had customers brought to them uh, as long as they you know, continued. So married women could do that, actually, part-time. Part so time. the part-time possibility of... Part-time. Uh, indeed, the, the Mamluks went so far as to turn the... as to, to farm out the taxes of prostitutes as an iqta, uh, whereby by the funds from this were used to not only for force of government revenue, but in the case of at the time of Zahir Baybar, supposedly even were sufficient to help field several military units uh, in his, his struggle against the, the Crusaders. So the girls were doing their part. Uh, Again, there was uh, that reminded me of a discussion whether actually money coming from you know dirty money like that could be used for good deeds or religious deeds. Uh, there was a huge issue in the 1990s Turkey whether actually a owner of a prostitution uh, or owner of a bordello manikia when she wanted to fund uh, the mosque build and it was a huge controversy. But again, we see that the early modern people, pre-modern people, were more way more flexible. There, there. That's, that's a great uh, example. The same issue came up in the in the, in. The in medieval period, both in, the, in Christianity and in Islam, could if were the, the alms of a prostitute legitimate? Could they be accepted as legitimate alms? That is this question amongst Christians and the Muslims. The same issue came up, and in both cases, it's, yes, it's okay. We we can you know, you can you can do good work uh, with their with 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 the donations that they, they, they may have given. Do we see any changes after the coming of the Ottomans, especially after the Ottoman expansion into the modern Middle East? I have not discovered any, any major change. The, the Ottomans, of course, were were uh, masters at extracting taxation from uh, their their subjects, and so they simply took this over where uh, where it was functioning as another branch of uh, state uh, revenue. One other in- interesting aspect of this, which shows how widespread it was practiced and, and how um, accepted it was, is that many of these women conducted their trade in uh, wakalas or hans or caravanserais or funduks. These were what we might call hotels, that is to say an inn that had many different rooms. 
And in many cases, this was, of course, where traveling merchants came to stay. And so it was a place where a merchant could come, uh, have his goods protected. Uh, he could find food. He could find food for his animals. There might, in Anatolia, there would maybe even be a, a hammam attached to it. And it's a place where he could find female companionship. We know that many of these hammam, excuse me, these uh, we call as these khans, were part of the vakufs, part of the pious endowments that were used to support religious institutions. Now, I haven't looked at all the waqf documents by any means, but the ones that I have examined never stipulate the kind of business that is to take place in a shop, in a dukan, or in a wakala. It's a very nice way to disguise what business was going on there. So it, it's it not only the issue of alms, it's even larger it's issue larger. that you can actually rent a place from a wakaf, as in the case that you mentioned that uh, the mosque in Cairo, where yes. you can actually set up shop at, yeah. at a religiously yeah. endowed yeah. Uh, So, this, I mean, the evidence is circumstantial, but I think it's almost, almost overwhelming that you know, the best investment that you could have is in property. And property that's going to gener generate revenue, no matter what the economic situation is, is going to be that of prostitution. It was a good investment. Whether the Vakaf is set up to support your family or for pious reasons. And this, it, 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 I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear that this was not always, of course, but this, this happened. We know for a fact that, as, and I, this is a much later example, but that the, in the late 19th, maybe early 20th century, the Zawiyas in, or some of the Zawiyas in the holy city of Kairouan in Tunis, in Tunisia, were publicly supported by bordellos. There was a bordello of Wakaf that was attached to the Zawiyah of such and such a saint, and part of the earnings from the bordello went to the maintenance of the shrine. Again, evidence that this was considered to be a legal profession. Uh, so, from from what I've looked seen in the medieval period, I'm I'm almost certain that this is was also taking place. But I you know, I don't I don't have specific documents that are going to come out and say so because you know, this was not something that was uh, yeah that you wanted to openly leave, leave traces in, uh, on paper also you, right. You know. What is so Mediterranean about prostitution? I mean, can we compare prostitution in the Mediterranean basin? with other parts of the world? Or is it unique, like, you know, because anthropologically, Mediterranean has so much uni unique, uh, you know, cult values and, pro you know, professions. Is prostitution one of them? Because it's, it's widespread. It, it, was, it was found elsewhere, of course, outside territories that were under Muslim political control. It was found in the parts, in the ports of the Western Mediterranean that were under Christian control. And it was found all the way around the Indian Ocean and all the way to China. I mean, you brought up the subject, so let, let me uh, make a few comments on this. I don't know there's a state of research mm -hmm. in prostitution in scholarship, so I'm not quite sure if we can compare and contrast prostitution yeah. on a global scale. One, one of the difficulties is, is, yeah, is that in, in, if you want to look at the history of prostitution in Europe, it doesn't go, our documentation doesn't go back much earlier than the, than the late 14th, early 15th century. Uh, and then only for southern France and northern Italy. 
but there are there are many interesting uh, parallels to the practice in both places. Again, it was considered a legitimate occupation for women, a way of protecting respectable women, keeping these uh, young men from assaulting women in the street. Uh, this, the, the major cities eventually established all established municipal bordellos, and in many cases they're very proud of them, and uh, these were pr provided again sources of income from the for the city. Uh, the church uh, accepted this. Uh, let me say this may be a little bit indelicate for, for those of you who might be sensitive to the subject, you might want to turn off the podcast right now. But um, <laughs> there is evidence that the, the church accepted the work of the girls in bordellos, but it had to be done in a certain way. This meant that a woman could not take control during a lovemaking, and that meant that a woman could not be on top because this was a violation of the natural order of things, symbolically. It might symbolize that a woman was taking control of her own sexuality, of course. And, and for the church, sexuality was meant primarily for procreation, not for pleasure. And so this was not supposed to happen. So this is not the way to make, no. make a child? No, if you're no, no, no. It had to be something that was strictly controlled by the male desire. And the... The notion, or the idea that of, of, of a woman being on top was later symbolized by a witch riding a broomstick. So this, was, this never happened in areas under Muslim control because Islam was much more sexually positive than Christianity was. That's, that's a topic for another discussion. We know from travelers' accounts and sailors' accounts that there were girls waiting to meet them, merchants and sailors, at the major ports stretching across the Indian Ocean all the way to China. And in China, prostitution was big business. I mean, Marco Polo describes it perhaps with some exaggeration, but we also have another account by someone who may in fact have been a Chinese Muslim who came to the Ottoman Empire uh, in the early 1500s, I believe, and wrote a description of this, the practice of prostitution in China, in which he says, among other things, that the Chinese emperor provided girls to visiting diplomats. This was part of the Chinese um, form of diplomacy. The it's a sexual hospitality, sexual, in a way. Se sexual hospitality, hospitality, in a way. Now, imagine this, okay, you are a sailor or a merchant, and you're going to go from Aden and the Gulf of Arabia to China, and this round trip could easily take a year. If you're going to follow the monsoons, uh, you are going to be faced with uh, lots of hazards. It was very dangerous uh, because of the weather, because of pirates, because of uncharted waters. You couldn't really be sure when you were coming back. Great risk. But you know that in all the ports along the way, you're going to be able to find sexual comfort, female companionship. Now, to my mind, that has to be a kind of inducement to undertaking such a long and hazardous journey. Because if anybody's ever, I know you ever talked to, to sailors in the American Navy, for example, uh, 
when they're only a couple months out from home port, they only have one thing on their mind. And so the idea that, you know, if I'm going to go all the way to Canton yet and risk my life and maybe my fortune, but at least there'll be some comfort along the way. So in a sense, prostitution can be interpreted as a institution that helped encourage long-distance trade that globalization tapping the energy out of out of a very you know energetic crew also also imagine this ship laden with rich goods arrives on the malabar coast in india and the girls come down to meet the ships the local ruler is happy he encourages the women to consort with the sailors and the merchants because one after they've sold all their goods, the girls can go in and fleece them for more money, which brings in even more hard currency into the local economy, and the local ruler can tax them and, and you know, increase so his revenue. But there's also a mercantile side to it, right? You keep the money, you know, they bring you, you keep your currency back. Some of the, some of the money exactly. you spend, you, you can just keep it in, exactly. in your own hometown. Exactly. So we know, that we know this occurred at sea, and we know the same phenomenon occurred on land. And the best examples are found in Anatolia. You know, the, the Seljuks of Rum established these magnificent caravanserais at about a day's march apart. And we know that the girls worked there. Same thing happened. You know, you, could, you, you marched a day's journey. You know, at the, when you got to the hotel, you would be able to find female comfort in addition to food, lodging, maybe a, a, a hammam. And so the same phenomena could occur. Again, prostitution then served as a kind of incentive to mitigate some of the, the, the hardships of long-distance overland trade. And some of the, the best examples are found uh, in related to the life of Jalaluddin Rumi. You know, he visits several of these caravanserais in which the, the ladies are working, and he praises them. He says, you are champions. And you know they rush to the Meblana and they give him obeisance and and he, and he totally keeps them accept him saying that that uh, you're you know, you're you're doing a terrific job we need you to do this this kind of thing so uh, apart from the fact that Jalaluddin Rumi had a, how should we say was very broad minded and very tolerant I mean he saw them as performing uh, an important service to uh, the community to, in at to, large to the community at large where does male prostitution fit into this whole story? Because we know that in coffee houses, I imagine other places, there was this phenomenon of male prostitution, which was, which a lot of you read in poetry, other places throughout the Islamic world. Um, if we're talking about the Ottoman Empire and stuff. So where does this fit in in terms of either uh, I'm talking about general market, the market of prostitution mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. What what spheres was was this more popular? And yet, I mean, can you distinguish? urban arenas where people aren't traveling, that this is more popular versus um, travelers where the other might be more popular? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a first question. And the, sec the second question is, of course, um, the whole transsexual, the issue of transsexual prostitution. Uh, where does this come in? Or a man dressing up as mm -hmm. a woman in mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the case of the, what is it, the um, Gocheks, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Gocheks. Like where, where does this all fit into this? Because I know in the Mamluk world it was it's also transvestite, though, not transsexual, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cross dressing. Yeah, um, thank you for the mm -hmm. clarification. So, uh, where does where does this all come into 
How, how does this fit into with the greater picture that you're working on? Oh, it's a great, great question. Unfortunately, I can't answer it. All I can say is that in the, in the course of my research, I only come across two references, one to male prostitutes who were taxed in the same way female prostitutes were taxed, and one reference to, say, transgender um, behavior on the part of, of men. That's, that's all. That's it's, it's kind of regarded as a different kind of phenomenon, and, and I, as I'm an authority in those things, but although it is noteworthy that in the text that I examined, never, 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 never came across it. Perhaps, again, it was, it was so ubiquitous, or so common, that again, people were even more indifferent to that than they were to female prostitution. I don't, I don't know, but it is a question that came to me too. I said, "Well, it's kind of surprising that this this, this doesn't appear." But maybe, uh, I mean, what comes to mind is, is is medieval Islamic love poetry, and maybe that is a more would be a more important source for that kind of thing, uh, because it, I, it proved to be not very helpful in the examine, uh, examination of female prostitution. Um, for lots of reasons, because in some cases it's so vague. You, you know, the word for wine is feminine, so you don't know who's he talking about here. Some of you don't know who the antecedents are, uh, all kinds of uh, strange images. But uh, I don't know. Let me just—I want to say—I would like to make one one other point on the medieval period that, concerning Syria, which I haven't uh, elaborated on, and that is what stands out in Syria with regard to prostitution more than. Any other region in the Eastern Mediterranean is um, the consequences of the Crusades, in which there was a significant increase in the number of prostitutes, in this case, European prostitutes, Christian women, who came to offer their services in Syria and in Egypt. We know that they both accompanied the armies, that is, they went overland, and, and a little bit like, I mean, it's somewhat analogous to these long distance traders. If you're a Crusader, or you take up the cross, and you know that it may take you six months to get there, and you don't know if you're going to come back alive. But you know that camp followers, this is women who provided sexual services, many of you were just outright prostitutes, were going to accompany you all the way to the Holy Land. It would help make that dangerous journey a little more tolerable. And so many women, I mean, some of them simply took the cross and prostitutes, simply took the cross, decided to accompany the troops overland. Others arrived later by ship. I mean, imagine yourself. Here's, a, here's a fun, an, an instance in which large numbers of men, maybe tens of thousands, are, are arriving in a certain area where the number of accessible women or Christian women is very, very few. Business opportunities... Do they have to be Christian? Look up. No, they don't have, don't have to be Christian. But you can, if you can see how it would be attractive, at least to some European prostitutes, to take a ship and go to the Holy Land to offer your services. And we know that this this happened. We know that when um, Saint Louis, on one of his uh, his crusades, the one to Damietta, when he pitched his camp outside the city, the right next to him, the the girls set up their tents and did good business. So it's like catering that you just, as they move on, there's mm -hmm. camp followers and, who are and, offering their services. And, and, and many of them, I mean, they weren't, didn't just work as prostitutes, but they, t they tended the, the wounded, they cooked food, they did the laundry. Uh, they played an important part in the Crusades. And we have one instance in which uh, clerics, uh, when they were trying to raise the enthusiasm for a, one of the later, uh, another, one, one of the Crusades uh, from amongst 
uh, the Europeans who were had settled in the Holy Land uh, tried to recruit camp followers because they knew that you know, they, they were going to need them. They knew these women to help uh, encourage the troops to uh, start on another campaign. So it's an issue this, of logistics as well, not only of pleasure and such. an issue of logistics. So it's a little bit analogous to, say, in the United States when they were building the Alaska Pipeline or during the California Gold Rush. You hear suddenly you have large numbers of men who don't have women. And so... The business opportunities for prostitutes are quite good. And in the California Gold Rush, for example, there were some who became very, very, very rich because uh, they were able to, to uh, address the needs, so to speak, of these large numbers of men who uh, had no female companionship. One last thing would be like this cross-confession of prostitutes because you said that the Europeans came to serve European warriors mm -hmm. who came to fight in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that actually, if you're Christian, was it general Christians preferred general Christians preferred Christian prostitutes or Muslims preferred Muslim prostitutes? They did, didn't matter. It, it didn't matter no, legally. There wasn't no. any, any okay any legal. Business, I mean, in this sense, in this sense, that's I mean, that's a good sub. I mean, that's a that's a good topic for the legal aspects of of cohabitation amongst uh, non religionists but. In this respect, you know, business was business. And one of the medieval Islamic sources for the Crusades, Imaduddin al-Sfahani, goes so far as to say a boatload of, the, of girls just arrived. There were 300 of them. And they, so sooner I got off the boat, then they set up their tents, started to do business. He goes into it's almost a kind of softcore pornography, his, his description of the girls and, 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 and how they conducted business. And he goes so far as, how, well, how did he know about this? That's one, one question that comes to mind. But he goes so far as to say, word of these women and their beauty and their skills quickly passed across the lines and a number of Muslims learned about them. And so they sneaked over to the crusader side and, 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 and sampled the favors of these European ladies. So... Correct me if I'm wrong, a Muslim woman could serve as a prostitute to a Christian man, but he cannot, she cannot get married to a Christian man, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. that actually shows yeah, how yeah. these law, legal codes and laws were created to protect the family or the, you know, the, the, one side of the society. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's also a society. As long as it is something that has a social purpose, mm -hmm. as was the case with the prostitution, you know, as was the case with the profession of prostitution, everything is fine, as long as it doesn't threaten the f basic mm -hmm. core of the society, which is family, and mm -hmm. uh, these laws do not apply so harshly um, on professions like prostitution. Well, today we've talked about a lot of controversial issues, and probably there will be a number of fatwas against us. Thank you for joining us, Professor Leiser. Uh, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. For those of you who want to learn more on the subject, we will add uh, a mini bibliography at the end of. Uh, we will add a mini bibliography to the website, and you can look uh, for further resources for that subject. Until our next podcast, uh, take care.